Bless you all. Thank you. Oh, gosh. Have you ever had an obsession of delight? <laughs> we just did. An obsession of delight. Uh, uh, falling in love is kind of having an obsession of delight. Uh, getting that job that you've absolutely put your whole life and education toward and getting it is, is kind of an obsession of delight. I heard about four guys who were golfers, or eight guys, two, two foursomes of golfers. They were good friends with each other, and they had decided on a particular day they were going to go out and, and play a round of golf and meet each other back at the clubhouse and have drinks. And so the first foursome went off, and uh, they did their thing, and the second foursome, but the second foursome passed them at a certain point, and they got back to the clubhouse first, and, and then they waited for the longest time. I mean, they waited for hours, it seemed like, before the first foursome showed up back at the clubhouse. And uh, when the first guy came in then from the first foursome, these other guys who'd been sitting there waiting said, what happened to you guys? What took you so long? We've been waiting here forever for hours for you. Looked like you were moving right along when we, when we passed you by. And just then this, the second guy and the third guy from the first foursome came in, and the, and the first fellow from this uh, first foursome said, well, you know, on the sixth hole, Harry had a heart attack. And after that, it was hit the ball, drag Harry. Hit the ball, drag <laughs> Harry. This is a burning desire for golf. It's more than your average uh, obsession. It's a burning desire. It's a burning desire that overrides all other considerations, that doesn't take no for an answer, that has a clear, determined uh, uh, commitment to a specific outcome. And they accomplished that, kind of to Harry's detriment, but they, they accomplished that. That's, that's the, the source of a burning desire, something that... Uh, is so delicious and that we have such a commitment to with such determination that we can ford whatever stream is in the way of it in order to go there because we have that determined desire to reach that goal, to have that outcome, to experience that, to grow into that, to have that or be that or do that, whatever it is. That is a burning desire. It's said that the word desire means of the Father. In other words, coming to us from the infinite. And this week I was reading a book, and I, I couldn't find it again to find the exact reference because I like the image so much I wanted to say it to you exactly. But I'll just have to give it to you as best I can remember it. And it was that an acorn is a portal. And it is a portal through which the universe draws everything that is needed to become the oak tree, the roots, the limbs, the leaves, the other acorns, the growth potential. All of it comes through the portal of this little acorn. So that gave me a different image. Rather than looking at it all being stuffed into the, into the acorn itself somehow as potential, that the acorn itself became a doorway through which it allows the universe to bring forth an entire oak tree. And I started thinking about us as seed ideas in the mind of God, that as we are seeded into the universe, we each of us become portals 
to the degree that we will allow ourselves to be those openings, spirit can bring into the world through us all kinds of magnificence. It's not that we ourselves are the creators of it. We are the vehicles through which it is allowed to come into being. And it can do amazing and magnificent things that are endless and beyond anything that we have imagined when we allow ourselves to be those seed portals. And for us as well, the ideas that we have in our own minds are potential portals. They have within themselves the ability to the degree that we will allow them to, to open and draw into our experience all of the fullness that we might desire from that particular seed idea. Now, how many of you in here would enjoy winning the lottery? Okay, now, I, I ask you that question because if you were to win the lottery, if you were to leave here today and discover that you had won a lottery worth millions of dollars, what would be your first emotional responses to that? Yahoo! <laughs> there is a God. <laughs> we, are, we are beginning today uh, a series that's going to go right on into August called Think and Grow Rich. Now, our initial responses to that title are quite varied. You know, probably most of you by now, if you've been coming here, that in the religious science or science of mind philosophy that we teach here, there used to be a phrase that was used a lot. It was used by our founder, Ernest Holmes. He said, change your thinking, change your life. A new idea has the potential to change your entire life. And it does indeed if we let the idea work on us. Because it isn't just the thought itself that changes. It's the whole emotional tone its behavior, and it's our way of relating to that idea and to ourselves and to others around us that changes our life. Not just the thought. The thought actually has to be allowed to be that seed portal. Otherwise, it doesn't bring forth changes. So it has to be more than just a thought. However, all of our thoughts are powerful, particularly as they are repeated, because what we know is that repetition actually makes it easier to think that thought again. So if a thought is positive, but it's really difficult for us to think, and we don't particularly believe it, our tendency is then to not think it anymore because we are aware of all the resistance that comes up in relationship to it. You don't have to believe a positive thought to let it begin to have a positive effect on you. All you have to do is be willing to think it. That's all. And to notice the resistance that comes up and just honor it. Okay. Resistance is there. Try not to let that uncomfortable thought make you more uncomfortable. If it does, uh, now see there's somebody that missed the initial announcement and now they're getting the cosmic one. <laughs> okay. Um, bless you, Janice. So what we want to be able to do is allow the thoughts that we want to move toward, the thoughts that can have the potential to lift us, to inspire us, to relieve us, to give us a sense of greater hopefulness or peace. We want to allow those thoughts to be able to open, the portal to be able to open. And we don't have to believe them yet. In order for them to begin to do that, we have to be willing to allow them. 
So we have to be willing to somehow set aside our complete skepticism and open up a place of who knows. That's enough willingness. Or, well, maybe. Or, you know, maybe not likely, but maybe possible. Just any little bit of openness can allow that seed to begin to do its work. Are you with me here so far? Now, we're going to be talking about this idea of think and grow rich, which in, in many spiritual circles might be looked upon as, first of all, materialistic, second of all, selfish, third of all, sinful. Can anybody relate to that? Anybody have background that gets stirred up by this idea? All right. Now, we, because it says in the Bible, for the love of money is what? It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, what does it mean by the word love? By the word love, I am assuming that what it means is that we put the idea of taking this spiritual substance that is ever available to us, we put the idea of having power over that above the idea of the infinite presence. It becomes more important to us than the presence of God. Now, in order for it to do that, we have to believe that it's separate from God. So I tell you this. If you are worried about money, if you are resentful about money, if you are envious about money, if you are scrambling about money or having difficulty with it, such that you are putting a great deal of attention on it, that attention is the same as love, and you have made a false god out of it. So we might also say, for obsession over the lack of God is the root of all evil, the lack of God as money. When we look at money as having more power in our lives than the infinite presence, we are loving it. Whether we call it hate or love or struggle or misery or lack, we're putting more attention. When we put more attention on it, we're essentially feeding that idea with fuel. And that is actively giving it a kind of energy or love by cultivating it. So money in and of itself is a completely neutral thing. It is a vehicle through which we are able to experience a greater or lesser degree of freedom in our own lives and a greater or lesser degree of ability to empower ideas in the world, ours or other people's, those seed ideas. So as Dolly Levi says in The Matchmaker, as she's speaking to her, her, uh, her deceased husband, she says, money, you'll pardon the expression, is like manure. It isn't good for much unless it's spread around encouraging young things to grow. <laughs> money is a vehicle, and as such, we have to recognize that if we truly believe that God is omnipresent, if we actually believe in an infinite energy intelligence that's present everywhere, which certainly looks like it, if we look at the cosmos, if we look at the, the clouds and the stars, and it, any of you see the moon last night? stunning. It's the, the actual, uh, you know, ball of, of uh, substance that is the earth has not changed sizes, but last night it sure looked like it had changed sizes because it was a lot closer to us. So money then, what can it be? 
if God is omnipresent, there is nothing it can be but God in form. Just as we are, just as these trees are, just as the stones are outside. There's nothing else it can be. Now, how many bad things have you ever said about money? How many bad things have you ever said about yourself in relationship to money or about other people in relationship to money? That is taking the name of the Lord in vain. The presence, uh, breathe, because I know this is uh, like setting everybody on their ear to have me talk like this. Uh, setting my old Catholic background on its ear as well, so breathe for me too. Um, Louise Hay, uh, God bless her, one of our religious science ministers, Louise Hay, has, has done a lot of writing on healing our lives from past painful beliefs. In this beautiful book, You Can Heal Your Life, her chapter on prosperity, she says, uh, she offers us this affirmation, I deserve the best and I accept the best now. Now, if that makes you feel a little queasy, she says, if you want the above affirmation to be true for you, then you do not want to believe any of the following statements. Money doesn't grow on trees. Money is filthy and dirty. Money is evil. I am poor but clean or good. Rich people are crooks. I don't want to have money and be stuck up. I will never get a good job. I will never make any money. Money goes out faster than it comes in. I'm always in debt. Poor people can never get out from under. My parents were poor, and their parents were poor, and I'll be poor. Artists have to struggle. Only people who cheat have money. Everyone else comes first. Oh, I couldn't charge that much. I don't deserve it. I'm not good enough to make money like that. Never tell anyone what I have in the bank. Never lend money. A penny saved is a penny earned save for a rainy day. A depression could come at any moment. I resent others having money. Money only comes from hard work. And then she says, how many of these beliefs belong to you? Now, I won't ask you to raise your hands about any of those that might have rung a bell, but I know that I grew up with some of those, and I imagine that you may have as well. So we have a collection of beliefs in our history, in our consciousness, that we maybe didn't choose for ourselves, but that came to us as part and parcel of our growing up and, and certainly seem to be cemented into being, into our belief system, in our families, in our culture, in our churches, and so on. So in order for us to think differently about our desires and about our relationship to greater good in our lives and more uh, freedom of choice and money, we have to actually be willing to step into a process and a practice that might make us a bit uncomfortable because we're going to be stepping aside from the mainstream of thinking that pushes those ideas into a tributary that not a lot of people go on. They don't, a lot of people, take their boat downstream in this particular tributary. Instead, they stay in the mainstream and row upstream. So what we're looking at doing in this next number of weeks is looking at the process and the consciousness, particularly the consciousness, of a group, a large group, of very successful people to see what it was that they had in common, what it was that they did that was similar. 
I believe this happened shortly after the Depression. Um, Andrew Carnegie, who was by then a very wealthy man, had been looking for someone to do a particular kind of research. This was not research he was going to pay this person for, but it was research that would benefit the person who was willing to do it. And he was having a conversation with Napoleon Hill, who was a young man at the time, and he said to him, would you be willing to devote the next 20 years of your life to discovering what makes the 500 most successful people in this country wealthy, what they know and what they do? Would you be willing to make a commitment to that? And I will give you introductions to them, and you go from there. And he said yes. So he began to do this research by interviewing these people, trying to discover what the common threads were, and asking them directly what their secrets were to becoming successful and wealthy. And they shared with him what they could, and he looked for the common threads and tried to practice these in his own life. Okay, fast forward to a few years ago. My publisher in New York, who's also a religious science minister, and his business partner, who's also a metaphysical minister, had been trying to get a book published. Now, you'd think since he was a publisher, that wouldn't be difficult. But they had uh, sent it out to an agent, and the agent they had, they had sent it to had rejected it. And they were sort of stunned by that. And they decided that rather than making it into a struggle, that they would uh, shift gears and they would make a partnership together to work with this book, Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill's book. Now, this is decades later. It has sold something like, by this time, 500 million copies in languages all over the world. It continues to be on the best-selling list of business books that have ever been published. It, has, it is now in the public domain, so it's out in a lot of different editions. So when they started it, they got a copy of Think and Grow Rich, and uh, I guess they must have gotten a couple of them each because they cut the books up so that they could create for themselves journals and workbooks so that they could work through each step in the book because he gives 13 steps. So they could go through each step in the book and hold each other accountable for the work. And so what I'm going to be doing over this next 14 weeks is I'm going to go through each one of these steps with you. And we are making them the subject of our connecting circles each week so that the discussions will be around the general topic that each one of these steps is. And so the first step, the first step is desire. The first step is desire. And not just, I'd like to win the lottery. Not that kind of desire. What Napoleon Hilt is talking about is a burning desire. A desire so interesting and so intense that the individuals involved could make a commitment, really make a commitment. And he gave a number of examples in the book, and one of them was the example of Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison decided that he wanted to create some kind of electrical instrument that would allow people to have light in their businesses and in their homes. He was looking for a way to create a light bulb. And 10,000 times he failed. 10,000 times. He was so convinced that it was possible that he knew if he did not give up 
he would find it. And he was willing to spend the rest of his life working on it until he did, until he found it. Now, that is a level of persistence that can only be brought into being by such a focused determination to bring about what he desired to bring about. It's quite astounding that he would do that. And also, uh, Marconi, he he gives a lot of examples, but Marconi is another one. Marconi dreamed of a system for harnessing the intangible forces of the ether. That's what they called it in those days. Evidence that he did not dream in vain may be found in every wireless device, radio, etc., in the world. Moreover, Marconi's dream brought the humblest cabin and the most stately manor house side by side. It made the people of every nation on earth backdoor neighbors. It gave the President of the United States a medium by which he could talk to the people of America at one time and on short notice. Well, we know that since the time that this book was written in the 19-whatever, 30s, uh, Think and Grow Rich, now we have iPods and we have, you know, our, my, my iPhone can do more than any computer could do in the, in the 1980s. Um, and, and he was only trying to get a radio going. Little did he know what was in store out of that idea. But did you know that Marconi's friends had him taken into custody and examined in a psychopathic hospital? <laughs> when he announced that he had discovered a principle through which he could send messages through the air without the aid of wires or other direct physical means of communications certifiable, determined, he had an idea, a seed idea, that he was willing to cultivate so that it could be the portal for something new to come through. Now, in order for us to step into a greater life, then, we need to have a willingness to claim what we actually desire in our experience. And we have been unlearning it for so long that to stand in our own consciousness, in our own minds, and get clear and know what we want and be willing to own it for ourselves. Not that we're going to go and tell everybody we know. We want to know it in our own consciousness for ourselves. What do I truly desire? What do I truly want? Here is some of what Napoleon Hill says about desire. A burning desire to be and to do is the starting point from which the dreamer must take off. Remember that all who succeed in life get off to a bad start and pass through many heartbreaking struggles before they arrive. The turning point in the lives of those who succeed usually comes at the moment of some crisis through which they are introduced to their other selves. He says, I believe in the power of desire backed by faith because I have seen it serve as the medium by which men staged a comeback after having been defeated in a hundred different ways. He says, I wish to convey the thought that all achievement, no matter what may be its nature or its purpose, must begin with an intense burning desire for something definite. Through some strange and powerful principle of mental chemistry, which she has never divulged, Nature wraps up in the impulse of strong desire that something which recognizes no such word as impossible and accepts no such reality as failure. 
some years ago, I was an acting student at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, a, a, a program that I had to audition to get into. And during the whole first year, uh, having no awareness of the science of mind at all, I worried that I wasn't good enough, that I didn't have the creativity and the imagination, that I was stuck in first gear, and that somebody would find out. Essentially, for an entire year, I had been treating my consciousness for failure. That's what I was fertilizing. And I was not invited back for the second year. And when I was not invited back for the second year, my landlady, sweet dear woman that she was, uh, a Polish Jew who had escaped before the Nazis came in and, and, and she and her husband had lost everything and everyone they knew in Poland. Um, and they had become very successful and she was our landlady and she lived upstairs. She said to me, her, her daughter was quite a powerful person in San Francisco and she said, well, let me talk to my daughter. Maybe she can do something about this. You know, and her daughter kindly said to her, you know, I have nothing to do with that. You know, it's maybe it's a for the good. So she came back to me and she said, well, you know, maybe it's good you find out now, you know, rather than later. And, uh, and, I, and I totally accepted in my consciousness the idea that I had been carrying around with me all year, that I was not good enough. And so I did not pursue acting any further beyond that point. Some years later, as a minister of a big church in Southern California, a friend of mine who's a professional stage manager said to me, why did you give up just because your, uh, your school didn't think you were good enough? She said, I can't tell you the number of actors out there who are successful, whose school told them they had no talent. And she named a bunch of them for me. And I said, you know, I didn't have the chutzpah. I didn't have the courage and the self-confidence to go forward believing in myself more than external opinions. And so I gave up. Now, one of the interesting things that uh, a lot of successful people have said is that um, the point at which you want to give up is the point at which you're almost there. Don't do it, you know. Ernest Holmes said, the criterion for anyone as to what is right or wrong for him or her is not to be found in someone else's judgment. The criterion is, does the thing I wish to do express more life, more happiness, more peace for myself, and at the same time harm no one? If it does, it is right. It is not selfish. But if it is done at the expense of anyone, then in such degree we are making a wrong use of the law. So Ernest Holmes is essentially also saying to us, the desire that's in your heart, if you can claim and hold to that with determination and vision, if you can be willing to persist beyond anything that comes and refuse to be discouraged, you will manifest that in your experience as long as your clarity of intention includes good for everyone and no harm to anyone out of this expansion of good. Now, I'm seeing you look at me with a couple of things. I'm seeing you look at me with interest. I'm seeing you look at me with some of you with hopefulness. I'm seeing some of you look at me with, uh, what would be a good word? <laughs> Skepticism, um, doubt, uh, or, and, and, and even, and this may be entirely my projection, even a little, because I know that this would probably be one of the ones that would come up for me, even a little bit of that, is this a snake oil salesman that I see before me, kind of a look, <laughs> you know? Um, 
And I have to say, I understand all of those, all of those facial expressions. I understand every one of them. But, but remember this. St. Paul said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's just like change your thinking, change your life. That a new idea, even one that is completely foreign to what you have believed before, can be a portal through which a whole new life can be discovered. So what I'm encouraging you to do is to be skeptical, but leave just a little bit of space for possibility. That maybe something could come of this, maybe something more. Creating something new, this desire, is more than wishing. You know, wishing leads to hoping, which leads to waiting. And waiting leads to stagnation. Dreaming leads to planning, which leads to action, which leads to results. So we're moving in a direction of desire that is more than wishing. We're looking at it from the standpoint of dreaming and desire. Raymond Charles Barker, one of our famous ministers in this movement, once said, the half-hearted in any field accomplish little. Those whose enthusiasm wanes soon adjust again to their own complaints. Those whose enthusiasm wanes soon adjust again to their own complaints. Boy, I can really relate that to my giving up theater. Those whose enthusiasm wanes can easily adjust again to their own complaints. So I had a, I had a lot of reasons, but I didn't have the thing that I wanted. Now, you, you never only get one chance at the life that you want to live. I have spoken in front of thousands and thousands of people. I have stood on all sorts of stages, large and small, large